It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. Like all forms of art and culture, the visual arts have had to find new ways to do things. Virtual exhibitions are a big part of that, but you can still see some of the work in person in COVID-safe ways. Today, we'll hear from one artist who has a new show that is going the virtual route. Photographer Kara Salmon's new exhibition, To Have and To Hold, is part of her series exploring the legacy of slavery through landscapes, architecture, and text. This exhibit focuses on the homes of U.S. presidents who held enslaved people. The AJC's Rosalind Bentley spoke with Salmon about her work, and she's brought us that conversation for today's podcast. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Shane. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And so um, this sounds like a pretty fascinating exhibition, and uh, you got to speak with the artist. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we are in Black History Month, but I do think that this exhibition is kind of evergreen, if you will, because it's so important for us to understand the totality of the nation's history. And that's what Karis has tried to do with this exhibition. Um, It's really interesting the way she came to it. Um, But what fascinated me even more is that she is not um, a photographer necessarily uh, by career. Um, By career, she was a journalist like you and I, and just had this pivot um, and decided to make the period of enslavement in the U.S. as her theme to pursue in this new phase of her life. Right. So that's, I mean, it, it sort of is, is as a documentarian in many ways, I guess it's sort of a continuation of her work as a journalist. Exactly. I mean, that's what she said was that she she told me 
something to the effect of, you know, I always knew that I had an artist in me, but like it didn't really come alive until she kind of hung up her daily journalism coat, if you will, and then tried on um, this new one as an artist. But the lessons that she learned as a journalist and kind of the eye and the desire to know more, you know, that curiosity that we all have, right? Right. So she wanted to apply that. And you're right, Shane, in many ways, it is a bit of a continuation of uh, what she'd been doing the bulk of her career. Right. And I mean, it sounds like a fascinating topic. It's one that that we probably don't explore enough, certainly in, in our many of our history classes, it, it tended to get uh, sort of glossed over a bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, and that's what Karis has said, you know, herself. She said, you know, she's what, 61. And she has said, well, you know, like everybody else, I got my fully inadequate um, uh, education in schools about this era of our history. And so it became incumbent upon her to dig a bit more deeply and to learn more so that she could not only process uh, what had happened in the past, but also to help her process how um, some of those past actions might have bearing on the way we live our lives now. Right. Yeah. And, and it's just a great story of someone who has uh, found a successful plan B, I guess, after, uh, after journalism. <laughs> <laughs> something we may all need to have <laughs> it's always good to know that someone can go on to do uh really great things uh post journalism well yeah but 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 again you know despite the subject matter i do think um we can take that away from it is that we are often more than one thing um, yeah. We are often creative people and we should find ways to express that. And so Karis has done that. And I kind of get the feeling when you look at her photographs and even some of the passages that accompany the photographs that um, she is also trying to explore the creativity or the creative ways that people who lived through that period of enslavement um, survived. So yeah. I think we see that reflected both in Karis's example as an artist, but also in the subject matter. Well, that's great. So also she is going to be doing um, some sort of presentation. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The show itself runs, it's up now, but it runs through March the 12th. But on February 25th, she is going to have a virtual artist talk, um, which is sponsored through the gallery that is sponsoring the show, the Arnika Dawkins uh fine art photographic gallery. Uh, she's going to be doing a virtual talk through there. So we'll have a link in our story uh, in print in the AJC uh, that readers can find out more about this artist talk, or they can just go to uh, the Arnika Dawkins gallery website and find out more about the talk. But yeah, I think, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Karis may be able to answer some questions during that. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, great. Well, and, and as you said, you can also check out, you'll have a story on this uh, on the website at AJC.com. Uh, and so without further ado, I guess we should just uh, 
hear from the artist herself. Thanks so much for bringing this to us. Well, Karis, thank you for joining us this morning with Access Atlanta. Well, I just wanted to start out with your background and especially the fact that you, like us on this channel, are a journalist and that you spent the bulk of your career as a journalist, but not necessarily a photojournalist. So can you talk about that and how that played into you working on this latest project? Yeah, well, I spent uh, about 25 years um, as a journalist, as a broadcast journalist, working for public television and the major networks, uh, doing long form documentary programming like documentaries. And um, in, in the beginning, especially in the public television days, um, the work was really meaningful. I really felt that uh, I was working on subject matter uh, that um, was of service to the community, to my community. I lived in San Francisco at the time. Um, but we were also doing, uh, we were doing not just local programming, we're doing um, national and sometimes international programming. Once I got to the networks, um, I was still doing that kind of programming, but over the years, um, the subject matter really began to devolve or I, I must've been the audience's appetite for it, but really the programming became uh, more sordid material like, uh, true crime stories and uh, um, stuff like that. Um, it was sort of soul sucking. Um, so in 2007, I took a buyout from NBC News where I was working on the program Dateline NBC. And um, it was my sort of uh, desire. It was a desire I didn't really know that I had, but I wanted to do something artistic. And I tried my hand at textile design and uh, took some courses at FIT. And uh, that worked out a, a little bit for me, but it was a trip that I took to um, a plantation in Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, um, that really changed my life. And so that trip, that was the genesis then of not only this project, but the first part of this project. Um, can you tell us more about that? It's, we have sure. made sure. these lands. We have made these lands what they are. Now that is, um, I guess the work we're talking about is now in three parts. The first part <laughs> took place when I, when I arrived at the gates of the Wessington Plantation um, in Tennessee with my husband in 20, I would say that was 2015. Um, and um, it was, uh, it really was that experience that, that turned me from journalist um, into artist. It was uh, breathtakingly eerie, um, but I, I sort of approached the whole, uh, the whole thing uh, through the eyes of a reporter. Um, this plantation, Wessington, was the largest tobacco plantation in the antebellum South, in, in all of America, actually. And at its uh, height, um, 
it, it, it had more than 447 enslaved people working on the land. So uh, at the time, uh, my, well, now husband, Frank and I spent about a half an hour inside and outside. We were only allowed to take photographs outside. And uh, I, I, I left there knowing that I was going to create something from it. And, uh, and I did. And, and that pro project was simply called um, Quotidian. Um, and because it's, <laughs> I'm pairing text with image and the text sort of brings out the uh, sort of day-to-day -day or everydayness of life on a plantation. And um, um, so, yeah, that was just six images. And I had a show of that work in New York and it, um, it inspired me um, to sort of branch out and apply the same uh, process uh, to plantations across the South. And um, that gave rise to my second project. Uh, it's a second portfolio called We Have Made These Lands What They Are, The Architecture of Slavery. Mm -hmm. Well, can you talk about why you decided to focus on the architecture? What drew you to to that? Because as journalists, oh. we we have to pay attention to our surroundings, but typically we think that people are the way to tell the story. So what drew you to the buildings and the landscapes? That's interesting. Um, I am not an architect, but I've always been interested in architecture and design. And that was part of um, why I thought I might want to get into textile design after I left journalism. Um, I, I've always been drawn to, to lines and, and the way things are built and structured, also uh, color, pattern, and texture. And honestly, really, when we arrived at this plantation, what I saw before me was a, a large building. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and that was my material. And, um, and we were not allowed, I was not allowed to take photographs inside. So uh, mostly I, I, I took details of structures on the land. And these structures were invariably built by enslaved people. And, um, and that is sort of one half of the, uh, the, the meaning of my work. The other is that the, the uh, institution of slavery, I do believe is like the uh, architectural foundation of, of what we are experiencing today in terms of white supremacy and its tragic lasting impact on America. Okay, well, then you move forward after you've had your first successful show, mm -hmm. and then you travel, as you said, across the South mm -hmm. to do more documentation. Mm -hmm. And so talk about what grew out of your travels across the South, because I think you went to pretty much most of the lower Southern states. Is that correct? I did. I know I've, I've left some out, but I've been now to Alabama. I've been to your state, uh, Georgia. I've been to Virginia, South Carolina. I haven't shot anything in North Carolina. Uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, 
And uh, and now in my latest series, I've gone to the Caribbean and there's one, one image in this new series that's from there. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've been to quite a few and I, I feel like I need to do a whole lot more. In tr- and also, I'd really love to explore the Northeast because that's a sort of hidden story, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, one that people don't really necessarily tumble to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, but then, but tell us just a little bit more. So you're traveling around the South. You were looking at these plantations. You are looking at the architecture. So how do we then get to you saying, hmm, I see a tie, not only just with the nation's past, mm-hmm. but with the founding fathers of the nation. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> so in my latest series, uh, which is called To Have and To Hold, um, I, I traveled um, to Virginia um, and I had never been to, to Monticello or to the uh, plantation house of President uh, Madison, which is called Montpelier. Um, so I, I was able to um, uh, explore a life on, on, on plantations owned by some of our founding fathers, appropriate to this month, isn't it, of um, President's Day celebrations. Um, yes, and uh, not only uh, did I explore these two presidents' houses, I also was able to visit a plantation called Barbersville, um, which was the home of the governor, Barber of Virginia. This plantation house was built and designed, well, let me just um, correct that a little bit. I'm sure it was built by enslaved people, but it was designed by Thomas Jefferson, who uh, was an architect. Um, And uh, it, it, this uh, house gave me the title of the new series, which is called To Have and To Hold, because in going through records I found from the Virginia Historical Society, um, I chanced upon a letter he had written um, to uh, his daughter uh, at, at the occasion of her marriage, in which he bequeathed to her more than 30 human beings. And, uh, and he gave them to her to have and to hold. And um, this letter, which took me about five days to decipher because of the 19th century penmanship, uh, was just chilling. And um, it, uh, it just spoke to me as uh, a kind of, um, I don't know, all-encompassing kind of statement about um, white supremacy. And this was Governor Barber. That was Governor Barber's house, yes. Got it. And so when you're looking through archives, trying to find records so that you know a bit more about your um, subjects, can you talk about... um, what you found in terms of authorship. We know that enslaved people often weren't given the opportunity and were legally barred from reading and writing. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about 
where you found these accounts and in whose hand mm -hmm. these accounts were written? Um, well, I find my text in all kinds of places. And it's really important um, for me to stress that every quotation or bit of text is taken from uh, records relating exactly to that plantation. So it's not random. Um, um, so I, you know, for instance, with Barbersville, I wrote to the Virginia Historical Society. In uh, other cases, uh, I'll, I'll go to other local s historical societies. Often there are online databases that um, where you can scroll through and find, you know, slave auction records. Um, I've gone to the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a, a national research library of American history and culture through 1876. There was a trove of information there. I also read books. Um, and um, one thing, as you mentioned, since enslaved people were uh, not legally able to read or write, um, it's very difficult to find contemporaneous language that's coming from um, the voices of the enslaved. And occasionally when I find it, I, I try to apply it. Um, um, and in, in some cases in this new series, I do believe I have um, one of them from an, a plantation just outside Atlanta, or maybe it's considered Atlanta, in, uh, in Roswell, uh, the uh, image is called Yearlin. The plantation is Bullock Hall, which was the childhood home of Theodore Roosevelt's wife. And the words there are spoken by an enslaved woman on the plantation. And I was able to find those words in records that were kept at Bullock Hall. Um, um, and uh, in, in some cases, and this is, is more pertinent to my second series, we have made these lands what they are. I read books that were written um, by, by people who had lived on plantations and two of them really stood out for me. One was written by Rachel O'Connor. Um, she was the mistress of Evergreen Plantation in Louisiana. And through her, her diaries, which were turned into a book, she didn't actually write a book. These are letters compiled into a book. Um, she really showed just unbelievable compassion to the people who she was enslaving. And I know that sounds odd, but she was- um, It does sound diametrically opposed, but- yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think they were were true words. I mean, she, you know, there was no social media or anything. She was writing these letters to her sons and daughters or relatives or, you know, whomever. Um, um, and a, a, another book that really stood out for me was a book written by Fanny Kimball, who was an English abolitionist and famous actress who married an American uh, plantation owner uh, named Pierce Butler. He was from Philadelphia, but he had land in Georgia to which she, <laughs> um, uh, you know, went and was appalled by what she found there and wrote about it. Um, and she mm -hmm. wrote about it again with compassion. It was sort of interesting that these two, um, um, accounts, these two separate accounts, the only accounts of compassion I've ever read are, are, are written by women.
Right. But nothing in the hand of a person who actually was enslaved. Well, not in the hand. I mean, Fanny Kemble, for instance, would quote um, directly people from the Butler plantation who were enslaved there. So their language was recorded. It was recorded. Mm -hmm. They didn't write it themselves, but they spoke it. And can we jump back really quickly? You mentioned Bullock Hall. You mentioned Teddy Roosevelt's wife. Mm -hmm. What year was she born? Because clearly slavery had ended by the time Teddy Roosevelt was president. This was the childhood home of his wife. Well, certainly um, this was Teddy Roosevelt. This is... um, I, right. I, I do not know what year she was born, but this is early 19th century. We're talking about early to mid 19th century. This was her childhood home. Got you. Got you. And so you mentioned text, and I don't think we probably have explained to readers who maybe haven't seen the show yet at the Arnica Dawkins Gallery that you pair not your photographs with quotes that you find. So can you talk about the importance of adding text Mm. to uh, the finished work? Yeah. And then also maybe a little bit about the design of the text. Sure. Um, Well, interestingly, and I, I guess I meant to talk about this earlier, but I'll talk about it now. I was a documentary filmmaker, so I'm still telling stories. Um except I'm telling them with still imagery. And I don't see that there's that much of a difference between my telling a story with a moving image um, than with a, a still image. Um, it, and, and, and with documentary, with filmmaking, you are editing words with images all along. I mean, um, that's the way it's done. Um, I, as I said, I've always been interested in design and um, pattern and texture. And, I, and I, I feel as though I have more control, certainly because I'm in charge and I'm not working for a network. I'm just more in control of the work that I wanna put out there. And so I, um, I think giving voice to an image, particularly to something like a house <laughs> or a part of a house. I think there needs to be something um, in addition anyway, but I do think that the, the text brings the image alive and I think the image brings the text alive. Got you. And the design of, of the text, um, you yeah. emphasize certain words that yeah. are, that accompany um, the uh, photographs, for example, I don't want to say they're in different fonts, but they're in different point sizes of the font. Some words are larger, some right. words are smaller. Can you right. talk about that choice? Sure. Um, I, I, I work with uh, wonderful printers here in Brooklyn, New York. I'm talking to you from Brooklyn right now. And um, we came up with the design of the text together. What I wanted to allude to though, were the you know ubiquitous slave auction posters and pleas for slave runaways that we see so often where the text is you know emphasized in bold in some cases and then in smaller cases uh, smaller fonts um, in on other lines and I, I just wanted to uh, create that um, feeling 
got you. And that's that's amazing um, to hearken back to that and marry the two. So you mentioned then that maybe there may be yet another uh, series with um, in installation within this series coming forward. What would that be? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I had a taste of the Caribbean um, and I, there's one image from Barbados in this new series. I want to continue to explore that because my my roots are West Indian. Um, uh, but I also um, I live in the Northeast and there um, there's plenty to explore here. So I'd like to to give that a whirl. Uh, it's also more accessible during um, this time of, you know, really not being able to travel. And I hope that that changes soon. But um my husband and I look forward to these trips, actually. They're like little road trips we take. Um, and we're exploring this history together. Um, and while it's it's tragic, um, it's really eye-opening. And um, um, I, I can't wait to have my eyes further opened. Paris, thank you so much for your time today and telling us about the project and we will keep our eyes open for what comes next. Okay. Thank you so much, Rosalind. It's been lovely speaking with you. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had. And we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience. And the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. Georgia Filming continues apace in February with at least 52 known active productions, the most since the Atlanta Journal-Constitution began monthly tracking in June 2019. Most of the productions are listed on the Georgia Film Office's website, but the list is always changing and the Film Office does not provide any historical record. So, since June 2019, the AJC's Rodney Ho has been keeping a monthly tab on productions so folks can see what has come and gone in the state over time. Get all the details on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. In 1976, Leonard Skinner played a memorable set at Nebworth, sharing a bill at the British Festival with the Rolling Stones, Todd Rundgren's Utopia, and 10CC, among others. Some of the footage of Skinner's set was included in 1996's Freebird, the movie. But on April 9th, the full show will be available on CD, DVD, Blu-ray, as a double LP with DVD and digital video. The release is available for pre-order now. Melissa Ruggieri has the story on the Atlanta music scene blog at AJC.com. Alexander Calder and Pablo Picasso met on only a few occasions, but their works of art often communicated. As each artist explored carving space into shapes, removing masks but leaving outlines, their creations appeared to be in conversation with each other. Their sketches, paintings, and sculptures will have a chance to speak again this summer when the Calder-Picasso exhibit opens at the High Museum of Art on June 26th. Bo Emerson brings us the details about this upcoming show under the Things to Do tab at AJC.com. The AJC's dining team continues to explore some of the best in takeout with the Atlanta Orders In feature, which you'll find in print in the living section most weekdays. One of the places they recently visited is Mercer Street Meals. The idea for a takeout-only spot specializing in nutritious, value-driven prefix menu was hatched last spring when COVID-19 brought much of the restaurant industry to a standstill. 
Mercer Street Meals offers quality food executed by a veteran chef. Think entrees like lasagna bolognese, roast brisket, fried chicken, and a full rack of ribs, each one rounded out by a salad or a thoughtful side dish or two, and all of it amply portioned. Read up on all of the places the team has visited on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felician. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta.